Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you look with me again on Lord's Day 27 from our Heidelberg Catechism, begin reading at question 74, found on page 56 in the back of your Psalter. Question 74, are infants also to be baptized? Yes, for since they, as well as the adult, are included in the covenant and church of God, and since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith, is promised to them no less than to the adult, they must therefore by baptism as a sign of the covenant be also admitted into the Christian church and be distinguished from the children of unbelievers as was done in the Old Covenant or Testament by circumcision, instead of which baptism is instituted in the New Covenant. Well, beloved congregation, we have been pursuing this important matter of the sacraments for some time, giving some attention to this important teaching from the Word of God as to the meaning of baptism. Baptism, we have seen, is no empty ritual. It is a sign and seal of the Lord's gracious covenant in Jesus Christ. Just as the Lord is pleased to grant faith through the preaching of the word and the power of the Holy Spirit, so he is pleased by that same Holy Spirit to confirm, to ratify, to uh, establish the faith of the Lord's people as the promises are especially sealed to them by faith. Baptism, you see, is for the comfort and good of the church, and the right understanding of it has great implications for us all. Both the glory of God and the good of the church depend on a right understanding of these things. And as we have had occasion in this Lord's Day, Lord's Day 27, to consider a number of errors that are promoted against the Orthodox teaching concerning baptism, we have especially been looking at the matter of infant baptism, the biblical teaching that the children of believers are likewise to receive the sign of the new covenant in baptism. And last time we were together on this matter, we considered especially the first thing that is said here in the answer to the question, are infants to be baptized? We noted that their inclusion in the church and the covenant of God, as well as the adult, necessitates their inclusion in baptism. For as we saw, baptism is a sign of initiation into the visible church. And what we would affirm with the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament scriptures is that God would have the children of believers included in the visible church. Now thus far, we have been speaking of something of the scope of the Lord's covenant, the extent of it. We have been saying that all the visible church, whether born again or not 
yet regenerated. Whether believers or unbelievers, whether even chosen to eternal life in God's election or whether numbered among the reprobate, all those within the visible church are under the Lord's covenant. And so we say that the covenant comprehends all of the church and we have taken some care to establish this from passages such as Genesis 17, speaking of the institution of circumcision in the days of Abraham, following through all the way to Romans chapter 11, where it speaks of the church as uh, a group from which those those branches can be broken off if they are unbelieving and faithless. And yet, when we come to the second matter in our catechism, the second reason that is given, it has reference not to the extent and the scope and the boundaries of the covenant, but it focuses in on the purpose and intention of God's covenant in Jesus Christ. The purpose of the Lord's church and covenant as its focus upon those who receive redemption. And thus, the second reason given is this. Since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith is promised to them no less than to the adult. On this point, I would consult the commentary written by the author of the Heidelberg Catechism, Zacharias or Sinus, after explaining the first reason for the inclusion of children in baptism, he says this, Secondly, those are not to be excluded from baptism to whom the benefit of the remission of sins and regeneration belongs. But this benefit belongs to the infants of the church. For redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith is promised to them no less than to the adult. Therefore, they ought to be baptized. And then he quotes a very important text, a text which is found in our scripture reading today as proof for what he has said. It is the words of Peter found in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And so the title of of our sermon will be this, Baptism and Our Elect Children. Baptism and Our Elect Children. And we will see from what I've already quoted, but also uh, the exegesis that uh, our catechism finds in this text, that there is a special reference to those who receive the benefits of, of salvation in infancy that is included and promised in our baptism in baptism, and the right understanding of that will, I trust, edify us and encourage us as we understand this important teaching. And so the three things we will consider today, looking at a number of 
scripture passages, but especially uh, focusing on Acts chapter 2, verses 38 and 39. We will see the promise of the covenant. We will see in the second place the inclusion of children, and in the third place, the duty of the church. So baptism in our elect children. First, the promise of the covenant. Second, the inclusion of children. And third, the duty of the church. Well, here we do have a most remarkable point in church history. The day of Pentecost has fully come And the Holy Spirit has descended upon the fledgling church of Christ's followers there in the upper room. And the fires of and the tongues of fire have descended upon those early followers of Christ. They have been given the gift of speaking in tongues in other languages that they had not studied or learned. And a great commotion is brought about as those who'd gathered there in the city of Jerusalem for Pentecost sought to see what what the stir and the commotion was all about. Well, Peter, he begins to unfold with great boldness and unction from the Holy Spirit, the teaching of the gospel. He unfolds from from the Old Testament scriptures in numerous places, the prophecy of Joel, Psalm 16. He begins to unfold for them the recent history that they themselves had witnessed In the days of Christ's ministry, his life, his death, his crucifixion and resurrection. And he comes to this point where he explains that now that the Lord Jesus Christ has ascended up on high, he has bestowed the Holy Spirit unto his church. And would that it be that in every season the preaching of the word would have this Result, we read there in verse 37 that they were pricked in their heart. Those who heard this, they came under deep conviction. Consider that. Here was the very city in which the Lord Jesus Christ had been crucified. Here were likely many who had actually rejected Jesus' mission and ministry. And in any case, they come under the weight of this argument made from the Holy Scriptures and brought about in their hearts a deep conviction, a sorrow for the terrible sin of killing their Savior. And so they ask of Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And here we read, And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And ye shall, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And here we could have occasion to repeat all the things that we have said about the importance of baptism. You see here how it is connected to the very heart of the gospel. He speaks of the remission of sins, that which is found only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks of true repentance, turning from sin unto the God of holiness, grace, and truth. He speaks of these graces, and he says that baptism is required for those who would so submit unto the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. It is 
central here as a blessing, as a sign, and as a seal of salvation, so intimately connected with it that it is called that baptism for the remission of sins. And in this context of baptism, which, as we've said, could, we could go at, at length about, he proceeds to have these words spoken, which have been central to our understanding of the sacrament of baptism throughout church history, and in particular, as the Reformer sought to articulate the truth of the Bible on this point as over against those who rejected infant baptism. What is it that Peter said on that occasion? He said, For, for this reason, you should, be, you should repent and be baptized. For what reason? For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And put to you that we focus on this text with such importance because a right understanding of it will ground us in so many of the biblical truths that are necessary to understand the sacrament of baptism. In the first place, we consider the promise of the covenant. The promise of the covenant. He says, the promise is unto you. And in order to understand the rest of the verse, surely we need to understand this. What promise is being referred to? Oh, you do a Greek uh, word study, and you, and you find that prior to this point in, uh, in the writings of the New Testament, in the gospel accounts and so forth, the precise word, the promise, is seldom used. Later on, as you read further on in, in the New Testament, especially in the epistles, it is connected particularly with the promises of the coming of Christ. You consider, for example, Romans chapter 15 and verse 8, where the apostle writes, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. There is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, a minister to the circumcision, a minister to the Jews, for he came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel in the days of his flesh. And yet, upon his resurrection from the dead and ascension unto heaven, he has now brought that salvation unto the Gentiles as well. And so it is added there in that connection, and that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. But note the expression, the promises made unto the fathers, the fathers of the old covenant. Those like Abraham are particularly in view. Great promises were given unto Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He said that I would bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. He said, to Abraham, look up unto the stars, so shall your seed be. He said unto him that through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And as we have occasion to consider in our series, he said in, in particular in Romans chapter 7, in Genesis chapter 17, 
that he would be a God unto you and to your seed after you for an everlasting covenant. Great and glorious promises given unto Abraham, which find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we could say that what is directed here are the promises given to Abraham. But in particular, as we study the surrounding context, there does seem to be a fair bit uh, to be said for the interpretation that this has reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit. The coming of the Holy Spirit. You notice that was what Peter had said directly previous to saying this in uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 33. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost. The promise of the Holy Ghost. And it appears at that point he's directing himself back also to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ right before he ascended unto heaven, where after they are all assembled there in Acts chapter 1 and verse 4, he commanded them that they should not depart Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. We've had occasion to see that connection. There's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is called a kind of baptism. And we've seen the significance of that previously in this study. But now, as Peter is speaking, it seems he is focusing on this, the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit is in view. Well, which is it? Is it the promises given to the fathers, or is it the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit? Well, there's, there's many places where the two are brought together. The coming of the Holy Spirit, you see, was that which was essential to all those promises given to Father Abraham. As it says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 14, that the blessings of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So I put to you that all of the promises of grace and mercy through and in Jesus Christ, as they were laid up in the promises given unto the fathers, are in view but especially as those are brought home to God's church through the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is what is particularly in mind here. And so he says, the promise is unto you. And this is a promise which especially concerns God's granting his Holy Spirit unto those ordained unto eternal life. The Holy Spirit is that person of the Trinity who indwells those who are appointed unto eternal life. So many of the promises of the coming of the Holy Spirit as they feature in the prophets in particular speak about God in his one-sided way, sovereignly granting his Holy Spirit 
unto his elect church. And so he says there in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, uh, uh, 26 rather, a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Likewise, you could have in mind Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 33, a chapter we've been considering recently in some detail as it speaks of the coming of the new covenant. And there, the the central verse of that text, of that chapter, we could say, in verse 33 of Jeremiah 31, the Lord says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws in their inward parts, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so we see... That when we speak of the covenant of grace in this sense, it is completely without any kind of condition added. You know, of course, that sometimes the gospel or the covenant of grace is proposed or presented in the form of a conditional sentence. Where this must be done in order that the benefit would be received. You think of what uh, Paul said to that Philippian jailer as we read. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The conditional sentence. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Or you think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish. Whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Most important, these conditional sentences, for they do set forth that which is the, uh, the sole instrument of our receiving Christ and his benefits, that act of the heart and the will whereby we rest on Jesus Christ. That is, as some of our fathers have said, a kind of condition of the covenant of grace. You must believe in order to be saved. But where we would take a step back and ask, from whence does this condition come to be fulfilled? How is it that one can, be, one can believe, we have to say, that it is granted unconditionally? It is granted without any qualification or quality within those who receive the Holy Spirit. God gives his Holy Spirit according to his eternal purpose. You do not have to fulfill this or that requirement to be born again, for indeed you are born again freely and sovereignly as the Holy Spirit works in his chosen ones. And so indeed, we see that the very uh, proper way to speak about such things, where we speak of God's electing and discriminating purposes, we see that the promises of the covenant, they refer in a special way to those who receive the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And in that sense, the covenant is unconditional. Listen to what the canons of Dort say on this point in Head 1, Article 9. Our fathers summarized the Reformed teaching here 
where they say that this election, that is the election unto eternal life, was not founded upon foreseen faith and the, and the obedience of faith, holiness, or any other good quality or disposition in man as the prerequisite cause or condition on which it depended. But men are chosen to faith and to the obedience of faith, holiness, etc. Therefore, election is the fountain of every saving good from which proceed faith, holiness, and the other gifts of salvation, and finally, eternal life itself, as its fruits and effects according to that of the apostles. Quote, he has chosen us, not because we were, but because that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Ephesians 1, verse 4. And so this, I put to you, is what Ursinus was speaking about. When he said that there is such a promise given to those who actually receive redemption. As he said, since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith is promised to them, no less than to the adult. He has reference not to the scope of the covenant, to those who have it presented to them, indeed those who have uh, the, the external calling to faith, but rather to those who have the internal calling, those who actually receive the Holy Spirit and the remission of sins are those who are in view. And so we have this, we have the promise, and we see that it has a special reference to those who have the Holy Spirit promised to them without condition indeed, to the elect church. And so there we turn to the second part of Peter's statement, and we come to the inclusion of children. Therefore, the apostle Peter says, for the promise is unto you and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call Now, a number of things that should be said here. Obviously, there is calling being referred to. The calling of God. What we could say is that those who are called through the gospel, called through the power of the Holy Spirit, unto the benefits of salvation. There is, we could say, an external calling which separates all of the visible church unto the gospel, but also that internal calling, which especially grants saving faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. And given that we've been talking uh, here especially about the first sort, that which is um, concerning the giving of saving faith, I think it is Clearly that which is in view here. It is the internal call of the Holy Spirit. And this, he says, includes you and your children and to those who are far off. Now, the word children there is the Greek word technon. And the idea there is just the ordinary word for children. It's used 
by the Lord Jesus, for example, to describe the normal relation of parents and children in Matthew 19, verse 29. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sakes, for my namesake, shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. It's also the word that the Jews spoke about when Pilate was washing his hands of the guilt of Christ on the day of his trial. And on that occasion in Matthew 27, verse 24, you remember that Pilate said, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See see ye to it. And the people of the Jews cried out in verse 25, then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. And that may have been partially what Peter had in mind there. You had called this terrible curse upon yourselves, people of Jerusalem. You had called the blood of the spotless Lamb of God the guilt for his unjust death upon you and your children. Well, here now I speak of a promise, a promise of the Holy Spirit that is unto you and to your children. So many people have argued. But I think that we also can't miss that the language especially coheres with all the normal language of the Old Covenant as it concerns children. You think, for example, of that text that we considered in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, when last we were in this series, where the people said, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Words here that you see have reference to the inclusion of children in the Lord's covenant. But I want to press this point even more and say that while we could say that, that that those things are definitely in the backdrop, there is also a mountain of texts within the prophets, an overwhelming number that speak in a special way about the salvation of children who are appointed unto eternal life that there are promises in an unconditional sense, granting the Holy Spirit, granting salvation, granting all these benefits unto the children of believers. And as you work through them, it's very clear that they have reference particularly to those who will receive salvation, not to the mixed group of the whole visible church, but to the elect church and to the children which are among them. We've been speaking, as I said, in our series on Jeremiah through the book of comfort, Jeremiah 31, 32, 33. Well, in Jeremiah 32, among those promises of the new covenant, there is a promise given to the children of believers that certainly seems to speak of their salvation. Jeremiah 32 and verse 38 And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever. 
for the good of them and of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. How glorious to consider that these very children of believers who indeed are inheritors of guilt and sin through the corruption of their family lineage, And for those who are appointed unto eternal life, God pledges that he will work sovereignly and powerfully to give them new hearts in regeneration. I could have to choose just a small selection from Isaiah. But if you would read through Isaiah, particularly the latter chapters from about chapter 40 to 60, you'd see that almost every chapter contains one or more promises like this. Let me just speak in a, in a summary fashion. There's the promise of their justification. It says in Isaiah 45, verse 25, In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. There is the promise of their regeneration. He says in verse 44, verse 3, I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessings upon thine offspring. Speaks here of their experiencing uh, experiential knowledge of the Lord. In chapter 54, verse 13, And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. Isaiah 66 and verse 22 speaks of their inheriting eternal glorification in the world to come. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord, so shall your seed and your name remain. Perhaps my favorite verse, something I preached on in the past, which you can consult that sermon for greater detail, but... I'll simply quote it here, Isaiah 59, verse 21. As for me, this is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. I put to you, congregation, that such strong language, speaking of their justification, their regeneration, their final glorification, their being preserved with the word of God on their, on their mouths unto, um, unto the end. You see that these things cannot, in particular, have reference to those who are ultimately lost. Yes, indeed, those who harden their hearts against the gospel, rejecting all the promises of the Lord, yes, they will serve to their condemnation. But as God actually directly promises to do things unto certain people, then we see that they have reference unto our elect children. And if we think this is too strong or too great language to speak of mere children, let us remember that there are examples even of children in infancy, even of children in infancy receiving the blessings that flow through Jesus Christ, even of his salvation. Think of John the Baptist, for example. 
John the Baptist, even from his mother's womb, it says in Luke chapter 1, verse 15, it is said of him, he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And then in chapter 41, it says, And it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leapt in her womb. There already, through a a great work of the Lord, you had a babe in the womb already regenerated and saved through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, we recognize here that these promises don't just have reference to those when they are infants but rather they have reference to what will be fulfilled at one point or at another point to those who are children of the church who are indeed appointed to eternal life. It's not, the point is not that, the, that all of our children are regenerated and certainly not that we presume them all to be regenerated. But we do trust that the Lord has promised that from the, the children of the church, God will gather his elect. This is the burden that I am seeking to stress to you. And so with that, we come to the third and last point, which is essential for us to understand how this concerns the duty of the church, how this concerns the duty of the church. And I put to you that we, we have to be clear about these things and the promises that are unconditional given to our elect children because from that, we can perhaps make sense of uh, the broader principle of the entire fam- family of one believer being baptized. The broader household principle of which we read uh, carried out here in Acts chapter 16. Paul is on that missionary journey there to the um, there to the church in Europe. He is ministering there uh, to the church of Philippi. And on that journey, they encounter this woman, Lydia, a seller of purple, as we read in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. The Lord gloriously opens up her heart to receive the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And then it is said in verse 15, and when she was baptized and her household, she besought us. It almost is mentioned in passing. But this believer has her whole household baptized as well. And unless we think that's just a a one-off thing, in the very same chapter, as Paul and Silas, they're thrown into prison for casting out that demon from that that poor girl and causing that commotion. There they are in jail and they're singing praise unto the Lord and God in a glorious way, he works a great earthquake. And the prison guard, he starts up and and assumes that that his prisoners have escaped and he's about to kill himself. and, And Paul calls out to him, harm not yourself. We are all here. And this soldier moved with, with the uh, compassion of these, sold, of these prisoners not to run away, falls down his feet and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, you and your household. The promise goes out to your household as well. And there, what follows from that? Well... It says very plainly, 
And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized. He and all his, all his family, straight away. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in the Lord with all his house. Now, what is the relevance to this question? Well, the dispute between ourselves and our Baptist friends is sometimes framed in this way. Were there children in this household? Were there children, even infants among them? Well, the Baptist may reply. It doesn't say expressly that there were. It says all the household were baptized, but perhaps they were all of years of maturity. Perhaps they all made a credible profession of faith. Perhaps they were all uh, baptized according to baptistic principles. So the argument may be, and what is it that we may reply at this point? Well, we can say that these things are not only given in isolation, but in the context of all the promises given to Abraham. I will be a God unto you and to your seed after you. And so the principle of circumcision of children on the eighth day would seem to also include the children of these households as well. But even that is, is an argument from probability, isn't it? If, um, if we are just uh, left, with, left with one conviction or the other pos- position, maybe it means that the whole household were baptized for this reason, maybe for the other reason. But I put to you that when you come to the book of Acts itself, And you see that the very first reference to baptism in chapter 2, Peter says uh, that the promise is unto you and to your children. And later on, you have the households included. There is an even higher probability that what we're saying here is valid, that the children of believers are to be baptized. But it puts you that things pass from the realm of probability to moral certainty when we reason with our catechism on this point. And we would ask the question, why? Why would God, even from the old covenant all the way into the new, appoint this ordinance of household baptism? For what reason is it necessary? Might it be argued that the, the, the requirements given for baptism to be lawful and valid, might equally be applicable if we waited until our children made a confession of faith in age of maturity. Well, I put to you that this will not hold if we understand that that baptism, like circumcision before it, is a sign and seal of the grace of the covenant That indeed, while it is indeed given to those who do not ultimately receive the grace of the covenant, as it comprehends the whole visible church, it may not and cannot be excluded from those who may actually possess the grace of the covenant. This is the argument, and it's uh, an argument that goes throughout the scripture. Peter uh, rather, Paul speaks of it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, where he says, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. 
Everything is subordinated to that which tends towards the salvation and the comfort of the Lord's elect. That is why the covenant of grace exists. That is why the visible church exists. And so, where we say that some of our children are elect, we then, and indeed, as the example of John the Baptist shows, that even God is free to give them all of the fruits of that salvation, even in infancy. They can be regenerated and engrafted to Christ even before they are born. And some of them surely are. The question becomes, what right have we to withhold baptism from them? If this is the understanding of the text, the promise is unto you and to your children and to as many as are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Then we have here something that our fathers have understood to be a very strong compulsion to baptize our children. Listen to what John Owen says. John Owen, I think I've mentioned in the past, John Owen is someone who had a great number of his children die in infancy. Many, many of his children died when they were but babies. And so this was something that he surely thought a lot about. And when he sought to write his treatise on infant baptism, which you can search online, just look at John Owen infant baptism, you see that he especially drew out this question. How are we to say that the Baptist position influences how we think about our children that die in infancy? This is what is what he wrote. And it's a long quotation, but I think you'll find it to be very wise. John Owen writes, God having appointed baptism as the sign and seal of regeneration, unto whom he denies it, he denies the grace signified by it. So what is he saying? He is saying that if God says this class of persons are not to receive baptism, and it's tantamount to saying that he denies the grace itself. Listen to what he says. Why is it the will of God that unbelievers and impenitent sinners should not be baptized? Answer, it is because not granting them the grace, he will not grant them the sign. If, therefore, God denies the sign unto the infant seed of believers... It must be because he denies them the grace of it. And then all the children of believing parents dying in their infancy must without hope be eternally damned. I do not say that all must be so who are not baptized, but all must be so whom God will not be baptized. A very wise statement. He says baptism does not grant regeneration, but... If God says, I will not have these people to be baptized, then what can we conclude? But that the reason is that they don't have what baptism pictures, and that is regeneration. He goes on. But this position, the Baptist position, is contrary to the goodness and love of God, the nature and promises of the covenant, the testimony of Christ, reckoning them to the kingdom of God, the faith of godly parents, and the belief of the church in all ages. It follows thence unavoidably that infants who die in infancy have the grace of regeneration and consequently as good a right unto baptism as believers themselves. Here is 
the argument of John Owen. We may expand upon this and say, what would we say of those who are elect and have some terrible mental handicap, such that they are not able to make a, a profession of faith as others might? Well, they themselves would be excluded from baptism on a baptistic principle. Whereas, if we understand that the covenant of grace includes all of the elect church, surely, not limited to the elect, it includes all the visible church, but as it concerns the fulfillment of those promises in the giving of grace, it certainly has reference to them, and so the covenant of grace is certainly no more narrow than the number of the Lord's elect, and therefore... The argument is that the children of believers, all of them ought to be included for the sake of the elect among them. So it is that you have something which, which so beautifully pictures the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ here. You remember how it was when the disciples tried to shoo away those people who sought to bring their children unto the Lord Jesus Christ. What is it that is recorded in Mark chapter 10 verse 14? When Jesus saw it, it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. There is something to me that strikes at the very, uh, the very heart of the Lord Jesus Christ, where children are excluded from baptism. There is something here which seems to go against the gratuitous, gracious, one-sided nature of the covenant of grace. And as John Owen has said, it is something that seems to go flatly against the very love of God, which the whole scriptures testify to. Here is where the Reformed Church stands. May the Lord be pleased to give us this conviction that we would not yield on this important matter, that we would defend it, and that we would 